Hello, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items. It's Monday, July 26th. John, what do you want to talk about today? Well, we keep getting more news about the Delta variant, so we'll start with that. And I also want to get into Facebook's clever efforts to partner with religious organizations around the U.S. What about you? The rest of the world is investing record amounts of money in American funds. We'll talk about that. And I want to get your thoughts on the latest diplomatic dust-up between the U.S. and China. All right. Let's start with a couple science and tech headlines, and then we'll get to the items. All right. First... A milestone in genomics. A consortium of 99 scientists has completed the map of the human genome. As detailed in a half-dozen recent papers still under review by scientific journals, the team filled in gaps, corrected errors, and uncovered more than 2,000 new genes. This final draft comes 21 years after then-President Bill Clinton announced the genome's first draft at the White House. He said this. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. And then this. First, we will complete a virtually error-free final draft for the human genome before the 50th anniversary of the discovery of the double helix, less than three years from now. In the end, it took a bit longer than three years, but we're here. And the promise touched on back then about treating and preventing disease is still strong. Scientists and medical researchers are already comparing the completed genome to DNA from their patients in order to identify mutations linked to illnesses. John, I know you're fascinated by genomics. How significant is this milestone? It's an astonishing feat. You know, it's the final addition, if you will, of the map of the human genome. And so is is an important milestone simply because... It is the final edition. We've had, you know, sort of uh, 97% editions and 89% editions, which have been enormously uh, helpful to scientists all around the world. In the near future, probably every baby born in the United States will take out of the hospital with him or her a CD of their genome. And it will inform healthcare, among other things, uh, for the remainder of days, I think. It's great news. It is. It's amazing. It really is. All right, let's move on. Next, the world may see self-driving trucks before cars. On this point, Wired reports on, quote, a growing consensus in the industry, as well as the more than $5 billion invested in autonomous truck startups in the first five months of this year. One of them, Aurora, says self-driving trucks will hit the road, or at least highways, as early as 2023. Self-driving trucks will probably rely on human drivers to exit highways and navigate smaller streets at first. Like all automation, though, this could mean fewer jobs for, obviously, truck drivers. Trucks may offer a bigger market opportunity than cars, too. Shippers paid about $790 billion to move cargo by truck in 2019, according to data cited by Wired. The annual market for Uber and the like, Aurora, puts it at just $35 billion. John, how do you like the odds on self-driving trucks before cars? It seems to me like this is something that could happen tomorrow uh, yep. if if the highway infrastructure was built out. Basically, all you need are express lanes, not a high occupancy uh, vehicle lane, but a automated truck vehicle lane. And you get from point A to point B, and there'll be sort of truck ports uh, that distribute the goods uh, via van on the last mile. I mean, that's an interesting concept that, I mean— putting self-driving vehicles in their own lane. I think that's that addresses one of the, you know, perhaps fear points for non-autonomous vehicles is that, you know, you don't want to be at the mercy of a, of a semi-truck that 
I don't know, there's some kind of bug in the software or something like that. The brakes don't (laughs) work. You know, it's not, uh, you know, it's not programmed correctly for driving in a snowstorm or a rainstorm. And suddenly you're, you know, you're stuck behind this massive semi truck that, that, that merges, I think. uh, Yeah. You're trying to, I mean, what you're trying to do in terms of freight, obviously, is, you know, make it a, a a train, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you want container truck after container truck after container truck, you know, whatever it is, 30 feet apart, making their way across the state of Ohio at 65 miles an hour. I think the, the car is, you know, it's just much more complicated and inevitably is going to have uh, some bad outcomes. Um, so that'll slow it down. But when you say bad outcomes, what do you mean? You know, somebody will get killed, somebody will get run over, a dog will get run over. It's just it's so complicated to have, you know, a car drive from the Henry Hudson to lower Manhattan mm-hmm. that, you know, you're inevitably going to have problems. But a truck getting from highway point A to highway point B, computational navigation of that is pretty straightforward. Stay behind the truck in front of you and make sure the truck behind you doesn't come crashing into your back. And that seems to me, given the technology, that seems relatively straightforward. So I, I agree with the wire piece. I think, I think that we'll see automated trucks running up and down highways. It seems to me like this is, this is something that your kids will think of as entirely normal. Indeed. All right, let's get to the news items. Let's start off with an update on the Delta variant. On Thursday, Los Angeles County health officials reported that 20% of last month's new coronavirus cases were breakthrough infections, meaning they occurred in vaccinated people. This despite the fact that over half of Californians are vaccinated. Dr. Anthony Fauci recently said the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are 95% and 94% effective against symptomatic COVID-19. But as the Delta variant spreads, it creates more opportunity for exposure, leading to increased cases, even among the vaccinated. Luckily, vaccinated people who get COVID are much less likely to end up in the hospital. John, there's a lot of new information coming out about the Delta variant, and it can be hard to know what to make of it. What should listeners know about this variant? Well, the first thing, obviously, is get vaccinated, right? Yes, get vaccinated. If you're vaccinated and the Delta variant breaks through your vaccination, you're much less likely to end up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So get vaccinated is number one. Number two, there's a big word of mouth going around that the vaccines are ineffective against the variant. But the notion that you shouldn't get vaccinated because 20% of the cases are cases where the Delta variant has breached the vaccine that is not a good idea at all. Mm-hmm. So really, the third question, I think, is, you know, does the Delta variant mutate into an even more menacing virus strain? And of course, we don't know the answer to that, but that's what everyone is most concerned about. So apropos of this you know, minority of breakthrough cases, Involving the Delta variant and people who've gotten the vaccine, these figures come from Los Angeles. Is this being observed in other metropolitan areas? We don't have enough data yet to, no. to say if this is, you know, one-fifth of the cases. But they're clearly concerned, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the whole tone of the CDC and the sort of virology yep. community is high alert on this. And that's a big change from, say, a month ago. 
they're obviously tracking it maniacally because if it's worse than the data suggests, then, you know, that involves lockdowns again, masks for everybody, closed schools. I mean, we're right back to where we started from. So we're right at sort of the tipping point of, oh my God, we got to go back to where we were, or this is a problem, but it's not a big problem. The takeaway is get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. (laughs) Get vaccinated. Get vaccinated. Yeah. And wear a mask, I think. I know everybody yep. sort of poo-poos the mask, but when I'm going into yep. a grocery store or whatever, I'm, I mask up. As do I. You know, it's interesting. It's become sort of a social signifier. I mean, I use it as a signifier, even though I'm vaccinated. You know, when I go into public right. places, I wear the mask to demonstrate that I take it seriously. Right. I think that's probably true of a lot of people. I think it is. And I think yeah. the biggest concern in the health care community is that we're in various ways letting our guard down. And the Delta variant is sort of a two-alarm fire that might become a five-alarm fire. Yeah. And so this is a story we'll be paying attention to for at least the next month. Yeah. Get vaccinated. Okay, let's move on to the next news item. Foreign investors are pouring money into American mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, or ETFs, more than $900 billion in the first half of 2021, according to the Wall Street Journal. That's more than was invested in funds in the rest of the world combined during the same period. The influx seems to be slowing down a bit. Foreign investors deployed $51 billion into American funds in June, compared to $168 billion in May. But it's clear that the U.S. is seen as a safe investment for now, at least compared to the rest of the world. So, Rebecca, the question obviously is why? Why is all this money pouring into U.S. funds? Well, I think the U.S. is seen as a relatively more attractive destination than other countries or regions. Economists surveyed by the journal are putting U.S. economic growth at 6.9% forecast for 2021. That's more than what the IMF is projecting for other developed economies, including the Eurozone, the U.K., and Japan. So, There's a perception on the part of investors that the U.S. is, even though we've just had this long talk about the potential hazards to the recovery of the Delta variant, both socially as well as economically, there's a perception that the U.S. is faring relatively better than other developed economies, and that's made investments in the U.S. more attractive. Even among debt investors, I mean, something like $16 trillion of global debt is yielding negatively right now. So anything that's throwing off a little positive yield is going to look attractive to investors. And I mean, that's good news. You don't want to see it going the other way. I mean, you don't want to see... You don't want to see investors pulling their money out of the U.S., for crying out loud. But this this figure, $900 billion in the first half of the year, is a record going back to 1992. Record inflows of foreign investment into the United States. And the earnings are great, right? I mean, this quarter's yeah. earnings have been really strong. Yep. We've got more companies reporting this week, as well as the details of the forthcoming meeting of the Federal Reserve, set to conclude on Wednesday. So it's an eventful week for market watchers, market participants. And, you know, people have said for the past several years that because of the ultra low rate interest rate environment, there is no alternative to U.S. equities. They're a TINA. Right. They call it, yeah, TINA. There is no alternative, right? right? You know, but there are alternatives in terms of other countries. You could look at non-U.S. equities. You could look at other asset classes, private markets, if you have access to those kinds of markets. But I mean, this was, uh, from at least from a, from a comparative standpoint, the U.S. economy is looking attractive to foreign investors. And that's good news. All right. All right. We're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. And we'll be back with more news items.
Welcome back to News Items. Facebook has been partnering with religious organizations like the megachurch Hillsong to create online experiences. That includes helping faith groups figure out how to stream their services, solicit donations, and socialize online. The New York Times has the story, and they point out that this could help Facebook attract more users. It also could be good PR at a time when Facebook has been battered by all kinds of bad publicity regarding privacy and misinformation. John, I'm tempted to call this an unholy alliance, but that might be too facile. How do you view this collaboration between big tech and religion? It's a win for both. It enables churches to reach a wider audience and to build communities within that audience. And for Facebook, it's a huge win because it gives them access to a vast constituency or constituencies all around the country, but it also gives them political juice. The leaders of these churches are important political figures. Republicans are likely to control the House and the Senate after the 2022 elections, and having various denominations be pro-Facebook, if you will, uh, will help Facebook navigate its political issues in Washington. You know, it's Sheryl Sandberg. It's really smart. Do you think there's anything troubling or insidious about the cross-promotion opportunities for faith-based groups or for specific congregations on Facebook? I mean, for example, take the average, let's say, Methodist church where I grew up in Topeka, Kansas. You wouldn't have had a candidate for political office walk into the church and give a stump speech about some socially inflammatory issue. I mean, even though this was the conservative area where I grew up and they were, you know, culture wars were in full swing even at that time. But here on Facebook, let's say you have a group of people from a specific church and, you know, anyone who wants to buy ads on Facebook can push content to this captive audience or this engaged audience. Not only that, but if it shows that there's a critical mass of individuals from this group engaging with content, let's say, on some other hot button issue, Facebook's recommendation algorithm is going to push more of that type of content to them. And then you have this self-reinforcing engagement spiral for better and for worse. It depends. I mean, there are people who would say that the black churches in the South using Facebook to reach an ever wider audience to push a political message. You know, I would imagine that Democrats and liberals would think that's a good idea, Mm. but they would think that if conservative Christians in Abilene, Texas do the same thing, that is probably not a good idea. You know, you can't have it both ways. So just to clarify, how exactly are religious groups using the Facebook platform? What Facebook is creating for these churches is their own TV network, essentially. Uh They're introducing a newsletter platform called Bulletin, similar to Substack. They have the video capability. They have the sub-community capability. And where it's going, it seems to me, is it's sort of its own cable network, if you will, kind of a mini cable network for John's Baptist Church or whatever. So, yeah, televangelism gets a new iteration. Yeah, but it's not just them, though, right? I mean, if you read the Times article, you'd think that it's holy rollers meet, you know, evil coders in Silicon Valley. But this is something that is being done with all denominations all across the country. And Mm. uh, it's a powerful combination, religion plus platform. Let's move on. All right. 
China has sent a list of grievances to the United States, along with a list of actions it says America should take to make things right again. The South China Morning Post describes these red lines as a first for U.S.-China relations. They were delivered amid meetings between U.S. Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman and officials in China. On the list of grievances, anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. and statements American officials have made regarding the origins of the coronavirus— According to the Chinese government, if the U.S. wants to fix its relationship with China, it needs to get rid of visa restrictions on Chinese Communist Party members, get rid of sanctions on Chinese entities, and drop its extradition request for Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei. John, it seems like China's upping the ante here. What do you think they're trying to achieve by sending these lists? The Chinese have raised the stakes here, right? They're Mm -hmm. not giving the U.S. any reasonable climb-down requests. All of these requests have to be rejected by the United States. Two of the things they're harping on, one is the anti-Asian sentiment in the U.S. China has been feeding that narrative via social media for months now, right? Stop Asian hate is both the real thing and it's also being amplified by Chinese social media interventions. So, you know. It creates a false equivalency, right? China is attempting to create some equivalency with criticism of the Chinese government's actions and questions regarding the Chinese government's conduct in the wake of COVID with Asian hate. It's a convenient and false equivalency for them. Yes. I mean, yeah. The other thing is the stop picking on us about Wuhan is especially egregious, yeah. given the Chinese effort, uh, successful effort to make it all but impossible to find out what happened in Wuhan. Yeah. So, you know, the question is what are the exit ramps from sort of the heightening of the confrontation, I guess you would yeah. call it? And there don't appear to be any at the moment. It's true. When I read this list of demands, I, well, that ain't happening. I mean, right. that's true. Like, like not, none of them. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? Is it a test of the, is it a test of the Biden administration's medal vis-a-vis China? Because I think there was an expectation that maybe some of the rhetoric would be a little less hawkish moving from Trump to Biden. That has proven not to be the case. I mean, Antony Blinken has said that the Biden administration would be continuing certain aspects of the policy toward China that were introduced under Trump. They're certainly not going to fold their tent. What happened prior to this is that Anthony Blinken met with his counterpart, I guess, in Alaska, and he Mm -hmm. read the Chinese, the riot act, right? Yeah. You could interpret what the Chinese did yesterday as a return of service, if you will, Mm -hmm. but the degree to which they've amped it up seems unusually high. I wouldn't have included everything, including the dry cleaning, right? I mean, (laughs) they could have have done three items and been done with it, but they Uh went for a full news item's worth of concerns, as they put it. Red lines and concerns. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for more detail on the red lines and the concerns in China and elsewhere in the world, we should encourage Listeners, to check out John's News Items newsletter, where all of the material for the podcast comes from. That is at newsitems.substack.com. And you have no choice but to go for the premium edition because the free edition <laughs> is no more. Is that right, John? No more free lunch. You know, we gave it away for a long time or gave away parts of it for a long time. And uh, it's time for everybody to pay up. That's right. Pay up. So that's it from us today. News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Simran Singh, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. 
We'll be back tomorrow afternoon with my interview with Mark Tursick, the former CEO of the Nature Conservancy, which is the world's biggest environmental organization. We'll be talking to him about climate and various other issues, and we'll see you then.